Um, if you guys can, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Romans, which is called Righteousness Revealed. Righteousness Revealed. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. Hopefully, we'll get through the whole chapter tonight. Uh, we have a title for this particular chapter, which is awesome because it's the chapter that precedes chapter 8. Um, which is one of the greatest chapters in all of the entire Bible. So this is the setup for this. I have to tell you, as you're turning to Romans chapter 7, um, I was talking to my mom on the phone earlier today, and she's like, how do you feel going through the book of Romans? And I said, it's kind of like being a quarterback in the Super Bowl or a pitcher in the World Series. The book of Romans is phenomenal. I, I like in it too. This is almost like the Constitution or the Bill of Rights for Christians. This is what starts it all. And uh, I hope that you'll see that when you march through this particular chapter and the next chapter. It's just so exciting. Uh, the, the title for this particular sermon is called Continued Struggles and Ongoing Grace. Continued Struggles and Ongoing Grace. You know, my spirit always longs to be holy. Like, I always want to be holy. And my heart would love to please the Lord. In fact, do you ever just... You ever read a story that, you know, about Jesus? Or do you ever watch a movie about Jesus and be like, man, if I could just be like 1% of that, that would be so great. And that's actually what God is doing. The Lord is putting that work inside of you to make you more like him every day. What a flattering thing for the Lord to do. God being perfect and holy. Think of how perfect God is in every single way, in every single situation. And he goes, and you know what? I want to share this perfection with you. So flattering. But... Day to day, that's not always the case, is it? That's not always how I act. Uh, sometimes I do cave in to my sinful nature, and sometimes it could be as simple as because I hit my hand with a hammer, and all these thoughts just come flooding into my head, or I trip on that one sharp Lego in the middle of the living room, in the middle of the night, after I told the boys to pick them up, and words that are not so holy come flooding through my brain. Or it could just be because I want to. And I'm not just talking about me. I hope you guys realize I'm talking about all of us. It's all of us together. Uh, but the celebration that we can find in this particular chapter is God is beginning a good work that he's going to complete in us. Uh, and I want to show you the di different sides of the natures. Uh, there's a strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Some of you have probably have read this book. It's a story about a chemist who comes up with a concoction or a potion and he takes it, and it separates his two natures. There's a good side and a bad side. And his good side uh, comes out during the day, which is very convenient. And then his bad side comes out at night, which is also very convenient. Um, so what you can see is that the, the idea behind the story actually has a place in that time and culture, the Victorian culture, where they were struggling with how they saw morality and religion at the time. And that's why he wrote this short story. But what happens is, what's fascinating when you look at the, the, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is uh, they, they stem from the same person. They are opposite in nature. They are separate in how they act. They're separate in how they carry themselves. They come from the same soul. They come from the same heart. And this is what Paul is doing right now is he's walking us through here is what people can be like, even though they say that they are Christian and yet they struggle. And sometimes you can look in the mirror and be very disappointed in who you are today. And like you know, yesterday, I had a really good hair day. I don't know what's going on today. You know, like I had one of those like, what happened to me? I had a really good Christian day. Why am I having a bad Christian day today? It's like, uh, here's a liken to, to our modern times. 
Um, you could talk to somebody, and they could just say the nicest, sweetest things, and then they get behind a keyboard and get on Facebook, and you're like, what in the world? I just saw them at Publix, and they were saying, what is this that they're typing uh, you know, on the distance behind a, a keyboard on the internet? Why? Because something changed between when they got in the car, drove home, and got behind a keyboard, and they didn't have to face somebody. You can see, don't, don't we see in the last, let's say, two or three years, different sides of people coming out online? Or how about if you get around somebody and you're like, oh, they're so sweet, but get a couple of drinks in them. And then they're a totally different person, right? The smallest inconvenience can drive a person to do something totally different that we think is counter to their nature. But the Bible and the Lord and your, even your own heart would say it's not counter to your nature. It's the war that's going on inside of you. In fact, what we've been talking about through the book of Romans is there is a natural tension that comes into our life the moment that we realize that God has set a standard for us and we want to achieve that standard, but there's sometimes there's no gas or engine behind it to get there. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? They're like, I want to do good. I don't necessarily have the motivation to do good. And that's what we're going to see here. So it brings us to our first slide before we even dive in as I want you to see this. This is the overarching theme of this chapter. Our continued struggles require ongoing grace to bring about deeper revelation. Deeper revelation. That's what it is. I want you to know as we're going through this particular chapter, um, I don't really know where all of you are personally with your walk you know, with the Lord, but I do have a feeling I can say with almost 100% certainty as you go through this chapter, the Lord through grace will pull you deeper into his love, which will bring about a deeper revelation of this, and this is what it is, how much you need Jesus and how much he actually loves you. You can say, I think I know how much I love him or how much he loves me, and I think I know how much he needs me, and then you get confronted with the truth and you go, oh, it's a whole lot more than I actually thought. So this is where we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7, if you join me there. It says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, For I am speaking to those who know the law. So that's people in this room right now, people that know the word. That the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But... If her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. I'm just going to pause here. Yes, it is as weird as it sounds. You're like, we were talking about grace. What is he talking about? All this adultery and people, you know, guys dying and and wives being released. But there's a point to it. I'm going to show you what it says. Look at verse 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So what Paul is basically saying is you were at one time, and he's speaking to a mostly, you know, previously Jewish audience. So you guys understand before Jesus came, there were no Christians. There was only Christians after Jesus came. And so now he's saying culturally and even in the religious worldview, at one time you were connected to an old covenant. Use that word covenant like a marriage pact. And that's why he uses that marriage a destination right there. He says, at one time you were married to another way of life. And when you were married to that way of life, you lived for that one way of life. And now that that way of life has now died to you, you have been released from that. And now you're now married to a new way of life. And now you're supposed to follow the new thing. So what you used to do in the previous marriage, you don't do in the new marriage. 
It's the, those old rules don't hold through. What holds true is what works in this particular marriage. And so that's why he does that, which I have to say, it's a little funky the way he described it. It was just like, you, I mean, it's, just, it's a little bizarre. But you guys can understand that what he's saying is that what, what you belong to is not the old way. The old way doesn't matter anymore. What matters is the new way, but the new way governs you in a different way. And we, I don't know if you remember if we were going through the book of Galatians, we talked about this is how I follow the law. When I'm driving down the road and I see the school zone, right, and the lights are flashing, I don't slow down because I'm afraid of getting a ticket. I slow down because there's little kids. And so I have a heart for the little kids. So I'm not so much worried about the penalty. I'm more in love with the reason why I'm not gonna do this, the breaking of the speed limit. I don't wanna hit, hit, hit those kids. I don't want to ruin their life. I love those. You ever see those little kids with their backpacks? Sometimes their backpacks are bigger than them. And you see them trying to stumble. And sometimes mom, especially on a rainy day, sometimes they have rainy boots, you know, and you're like, oh, look at these little ducklings just walking behind the crossing guard. How, how could anybody speed through here, right? Why? Because there's a love in my heart for the goodness, right? So though I'm not driven by the law. I'm driven by the spirit of the law. I'm driven by the love of the law. I'm not driven by the penalty of the law. And that's what he's saying. When we were raised from Christ, and that's another thing that we can see that happens inside of the church. The people that were connected to the old covenant were connected to an old performance. This is how you knew you were a good Jew. You kept the commandments. Well, at least outwardly, you kept the commandments, right? As far as everybody in synagogue or a church knew, you kept the commandments. And so everybody looked at Joey and said, look at Joey. He's doing so good. He does so good. When, when, he, when I look at him, he never, he never breaks the commandments as far as I can tell. When we have to pick up churches, chairs at church, he picks up four at a time. When we went to the picnic, he brought a nice pie. He ate a lot of hot dogs, but he brought a nice pie. He's just such a great, he's just a great Christian guy. But then what about when I go home? Right? So you can't judge me. God can judge me. And so what he was saying is that some people can take and do that. Hey, I vote a certain way. So I must be good. Oh, I'm an American. Oh, so I must be really, really good. Jesus really loves Americans. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I pay my taxes on time. Jesus loves that. You're so good. He, he tithe. I, I sing. I raise my hands in worship. But what about when the Lord is with you alone? You know, what you can do is not who you are. When the lights go out, this is what the Lord says. I, I don't care what anybody else is judging you by. I know you like that. It's magic. It's magic. At the end of the day, you have to say this. It doesn't matter what other people say. It matters what God says. It doesn't matter if Joey, Pastor Joey or Pastor Craig or Pastor Ryan says that you're okay. It matters if God says you're okay. And if God says that you're not okay, then you must examine that situation with him because he can see all the way down past your behavior, past your good works, past even what you want to put as a facade out to people, and he measures you by your heart. Who are you really? You know, people have always said, you are who you are when nobody is around. Before I go to bed at night, I like to leave one little light on and say a little prayer uh, for the end of the day. And I like to confess my sins before the Lord. And then I like to sit and listen and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Not what do I want to say? Here's my litany of things. Lord, how do you judge me? How am I doing? I want to sit and listen to you. And that's where we can see verse four now raises us up to the next part. It says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's what the whole point of Christianity is. We're no longer bearing fruit for the law. We're bearing fruit for Jesus Christ. 
That's not a performance. That's not a process. That is a relationship. That is a marriage pact between the church and God. Look at verse five. For when we were in the realm of flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were in work in us. So we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what was bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit. So we're no longer doing a performance. We're living alongside a God who is very present in our life. You know, the Holy Spirit is a person that comes and does life with you, in you, and through you. This is not a situation where you go, did I check off all the boxes? This is a relationship. This is a, hi, how are you doing? How are you doing today? What can I do for you today? Hey, can I sit and talk with you? I have had a horrible day. Can you sit and listen? There's things that happen in a relationship that don't happen in a process. And that's what he's saying right here. Now look at the next part. And now the old way of the, not the old way of the written code, which I love, which means we no longer have to worry about being accepted by people or accepted by church. What we have to be worried about is, are we accepted by Christ? That's it. And so now we move into another part where it says there's the sinful me. And you can see here, there's a, we're going to talk about a sickness that's running through our body. Look at verse seven. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Paul is so smart. Paul knows the mo- moment he says, hey guys, we're not living by the law anymore. Someone's going to come along and go, oh, are we free to do anything we want? So immediately he goes, oh, am I saying that the law is sinful? Paul, look at, look at what he says next. Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin had not been, sorry, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And this is true, right? The moment that I know that there's a line, I want to cross it. You know what's about this? It's crazy. Um, I'm not, I I mean, I love, I love bread and butter. Does anybody like bread and butter in here? I never loved bread and butter more than when I went on a keto diet. (laughs) Right? Because why? Because it's everywhere the moment you go on a diet, Right? You know, like we go, I go, I call my mom and go, mom, we're not doing carbs. Man, what's in the center of the table as soon as I get to Thanksgiving dinner? Just a giant hot bread that just came out of the oven and honey butter. And I was like, what are you doing? And that bread, it just, it feels like it's talking to you, doesn't it? Like between the slices, like, you know, it's just Thanksgiving. It's just today. You need a cheat day. You know, right? And that's the moment. What he's saying, there's a diagnostic test that's running inside of you. This is the moment that you can say, I didn't know that there was a line that was going to be across, so I never thought about it. But the moment that the line showed up, now I'm thinking about it. In fact, I'm even fantasizing about it. He's saying there's an important spiritual guideline here, which is, brings us to our first, or sorry, second point here, is the diagnostic test that the Bible is running. And this is what you can see when you're dealing with flesh, Galatians 5.17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that just know that's your starting point right now. Your body is in conflict with your soul, so that you are not to do whatever you want. And this is the reveal to you. The Bible is showing you like a mirror, right? The Bible is like holding up a mirror to you and going, look at you. You're a mess because why? There's a tug of war that's happening in your soul. There's one side, a Jekyll, and another side that's a Hyde. One wants to do good and one wants to do bad, but it still comes from the same you. But the Lord is also showing us how we should be, which is why this is so frustrating. Did you know that in other countries, um, they are dealing with social media in a very unique way? They believe that when you go on your phone, and you guys know this, I don't know if you're getting into this, on your phone, you can download filters that make you beautiful. 
And so there's people called influencers. I don't know if you've heard about this. There's people called influencers that go on social media and what they do is they post pictures of them like say, I was really wanting to sell a tablet or if I wanted to sell a Coke, I would stand there and go, oh, I love Coke and hopefully Coke sponsors me, right? And that's how they make money. But what they do is they put on these filters that make them beautiful. But what's happening is people are finding them like in public and going, oh my gosh, you don't look like anything that you said you look like on Instagram. And so come, actual true thing, they're making laws in other country. You have to be as ugly as you actually are on Instagram. <laughs> no more of these filters. No more. That's actually illegal because what they can do. And so I went just to like fool around because uh, Jackie and I and the boys like to hold up. I'm like, sometimes you can put a cowboy hat on your you know, head and these filters. You can do funny things, turn you into an alien. I clicked on one of the beautiful ones to see. And I was like, can't be that great. And I looked and I was like, that's a handsome man. And then I clicked it off, and I was like, oh, that's hideous. And I noticed what it did. It got rid of all the imperfections, right? It showed me as maybe as I should be, I guess. But really what it showed me is it showed all the parts where it needed to come along and smooth out the rough edges. And that is what the Word wants to do in your heart. Problem is, is that when we look in the mirror of the Bible, it's not who we see. And we get frustrated in that moment. And we think at some, at some point that we have failed the law, but the law was never to show us as beautiful. The law was to show us for who we are. A person who is constantly in struggle between what is good and what is right and what I selfishly want to do. And that's the place where I need the most work. And so what the Bible is showing you is don't get frustrated the diagnostic is saying, this is where God wants to work. God is not ashamed. God is not running away from you. If you are in this room today and you have rough edges, maybe you have secret sin, God already knows. And he plans to meet you where you need him the most. He will not bail on you. He will not run away from you. He went all the way up on the cross for you specifically. Look at the next continuing part. This is what Paul goes on to say. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Isn't that interesting? So it's kind of an interesting point because coveting is an interesting one of all the Ten Commandments to pick because covenant is like, I, want, I desire something that somebody else has, right? My Joey definition of coveting is craving something that someone else has and not being satisfied until I get it. In fact, I would maybe even move into the place of fantasizing what life would be like if I had that. And the Bible would say this way, coveting kind of shows this. A true healthy heart does not produce unrighteousness. A true healthy heart does not produce unrighteousness. So if you are failing in the Ten Commandments, guess what? The diagnostic test is this. You have an unrighteous heart. Now, you might be a Christ follower, and you might love the Lord, but you also might have an unrighteous heart, which means what is the Lord doing? rolling up his sleeves and diving in and beginning to do the work. Look at verse eight. But sin, sin is working in us, right? But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, isn't that interesting? Sin using the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. This is Paul, super Paul, right? Superman of the New Testament. I have produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So think about this. When you were a kid and you didn't know all the rules, you were just running around. You know what? My favorite, my kids don't know the rules. My kids, this doesn't happen though, just so you guys know. Don't write me any emails. They would love the idea if I just told them they could run outside in their underwear. But there are rules. You cannot go outside in their underwear. But the day that they found out that they could not go outside in their underwear, now they're bummed. They've never been outside in their underwear. But then they're standing like this by the window and the door. Why can't I go out there? What's the problem? Why does anybody else care? And I'm like, oh, because you're in your underwear. 
because I said so, right? Every dad, because I said so, right? But they didn't care about it until I said, guess what? You can't go out there in your underwear, right? And so this is this moment. What is it saying? Sin came alive in me, right? Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the uh, commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and is righteous and is good. So just a reminder, we're just looking at this. It doesn't really have anything to do. The law isn't at fault here. But there was a moment that that I saw that there was a law, that there was a line I wanted to cross it. It's kind of interesting how you think about this. It brought a death around here. This is a very sneaky way of doing this inside of me. Sin has this way of sneaking in there and saying, but it's so sweet, that forbidden fruit over there, isn't it? Stolen water is always sweeter. But that's not actually true, is it? Because think about this. Sin promised something it can't give. Full pleasure. Full joy. Full happiness. Only one thing can do that. And that's Jesus Christ. Look at Eve. She was in paradise, wasn't she? She had one rule. Just think about that. We have ten commandments. She had one rule. And what was the rule? Don't eat of the one fruit. Because if you do, you will surely die. It was available to her, right? And so did she eat the fruit? Did it give her everything that sin promised her? Absolutely not. Promised to be as wise as God. Was she as wise as God? No, she was just aware of her shame and her nakedness. And did that outweigh her need to follow God? No. No, just here, I want you to understand what I'm asking you right now. Did her desire outweigh her need to follow God? If she could go in a DeLorean and go back in time, she would slap herself in the face and say, don't eat that fruit because if you do, you are going to lose out on the very presence of God and it ain't worth it. So Eve fell to sin and she said to herself, look, I'm not so bad. Did she say that? No, she said, look what I've done. Naked and ashamed I am. Remember what the Lord said? Who told you that you're naked? You see, the law is holy. And the law is a standard. And the law is like this building. It doesn't move. It's me doing mental gymnastics, dancing around it, trying to justify what I can and can't do because of my current situation, right? That is the place that we struggle. It's us that's doing the moving. The law has not done anything. So the law remains holy, does it not? Is it better not to kill people? Absolutely. It would be great if nobody killed people. Wouldn't that be great if nobody ever killed people ever again? Wouldn't it be great if nobody ever told a lie again? How much do you think would change just on those two commandments alone? How about nobody ever committed adultery again? How about if nobody ever stole anything? Do you see how the world would start to tend to go towards what? Paradise. Just as God commanded. And so that's what he's saying here. It's in me. The law isn't evil, but the law afforded an opportunity for me to show who I truly am. It's kind of like this. Some guy said it really, really well. Um, It's like an old English preacher. He said, it's like the sun pointing down on the soil. Now, soil could be really good, right? Soil could be nice and good, and it'd be wonderful. You're like, man, it's, it's full of all the right nutrients. But when the sun hits it, good grass can grow, and then what also can grow? Weeds, because it was already in it. So the sun didn't do anything wrong. The soil didn't do anything wrong. But what was in it did what was wrong. And that's why we look at verse 13. Look at his conclusion to that. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, which is the law, so that through the commandment, 
uh, sin might become utterly sinful. So it's kind of fascinating what he's done from verses 7 all the way through to verses 13. He took the Ten Commandments, but if you notice, most of the Ten Commandments kind of go, from, except from the beginning, from the, we're supposed to love God, right? We're supposed to love God. That's an internal thing. And then he goes through a bunch of commandments that are external. Don't steal. Don't kill. That's external, right? And then it ends on an internal commandment, right? Don't covet. Now, why did he pick that? Because Paul is super smart, and he wants to show you something. He wants to say, I'm a super awesome Jew, I'm a rabbi. I, I practice a lot. I don't worship any idols. I've never stolen anybody's wife, or if you're a lady in this room, I've never stolen anybody's husband. In fact, he would say, I've never stole anything. I go to church and I tithe regularly. So the first nine commandments I got down pat. What about that last commandment that talks about your heart? Nope, not really good at that. You see, that inward turn actually blew Paul up, and that's why he's including it in chapter 7. It's because he's saying, at this particular moment, I have found by looking in my heart, remember when this one light was hitting me? Between me and Jesus, if I'm telling the truth and I'm looking at the diagnostic test, I am not healthy in my heart. I am unrighteous. I have coveted. I have fantasized about what it would be like to do all these bad things that I can't do. And that's who I really want to be, but maybe save for the consequences. You say, well, well, maybe I'm containing it to the inside, but you're also not trusting the Lord, are you? You're not also pursuing all the good things that the Lord has for you. If you are spending your time fantasizing about the things you don't have, you're not fantasizing about or imagining or following with the Lord what he does have for you, right? What were you giving your mental dollars? So my behavior is good because that's how I act, right? But love is different. Love is earned, Love is genuine. Love is authentic. And so for me to truly love you or for you to truly love me or for us to love God, our heart must be good. So look, let's take a trip through coveting real quick. Look at this. First, before I steal anything, I must covet. Interesting, it starts in the heart, right? I need to want what somebody else has. Okay, how about this? How about this? First, before I lie, I must covet. What do I covet? I covet what the truth cannot offer. I'm embarrassed about the results or I'm embarrassed about the truth, so I tell a lie because I covet what the truth cannot offer. I want something else, right? Or how about this? Uh, if you were in this room and this is something you're doing, you're fantasizing about having sex with somebody else who's not your spouse. I covet to have a relationship with somebody that God has not given me. Just think about it in those terms. It's not about somebody that I'm attracted to. God has not given them to me in that way. And so I'm not satisfied with the life I have. In fact, when I deal with young adults in counseling, this is one of the biggest things, is coveting sex before marriage, right? They're like, well, I love her, and we got the ring on, and we're, we're engaged. Can we just move? No, because God has not officially given her over to you or him over to, you, to her, right? This is where you are. You are coveting a place where you're not trusting God, but it starts in the heart, and it starts with coveting. Starts with sin. It starts with not trusting God. And so Paul is saying the outward sin, that's one thing. The inward sin is my heart. I'm not happy with my life. My heart is corrupt. And so I'm not allowing the love of God to operate in my heart because I don't actually love the things of God. And so, but here he brings the cure to that. Look at his cure to this. He makes a pivot. Now, I want you to notice the tense, the verb tense that he's using. He talks about what I used to be like. Now, in verse 14, he's going to do a lot of present tense talking. So if you are a Christian and you're in this room and you have sinned or you have ongoing struggles, these verses are for you. And we all say amen. Verse 14, it says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. 
sold as a slave to sin. Does that ever have you, have you woken up like that as a Christian? Why am I not as holy as, you know, as, as Pastor Ryan? Why is he so awesome and I'm not? Why don't I just get up? Why am I not excited to turn on Z88.3 every day? Why am I not excited to read 15 hours of Bible every day? I just want to lock myself in a room and read the Bible all day. Why am I not excited to do that? Because look at the words, I am unspiritual and I'm sold as a slave to sin. Interesting about this, who sold Paul into sin? Who sold Paul into sin? Paul. Who sold you into sin? You did. But why? Because you wanted to give it. You sold yourself. It wasn't just I was a slave to sin. You actually put yourself up on the auction block and said, take them. Take them. Take them all. Take them all. I wanted sin. Take it all. Look at verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I do, look at this. It's like, who's on first? For what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do. So what he's basically saying is I really hate sin, but I can't help it. I love righteousness, but I don't always do it because there's these two natures raging in me. Look at verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And so he's basically saying, as a person like me, who's eating like a rabbit sometimes, right? Lettuce, carrot. It's got to be like tasteless vinegar, right? You know, I can taste that it's probably going to be good, right? Because it doesn't taste very good. But then I feel the effects of it, right? My blood pressure goes down. I'm sleeping really good at night. All of a sudden, all my health concerns are starting to clear up, right? Everything's starting to feel good. And look what he's saying. I agree that the law is good. I know that the law is good, but sometimes it's hard for me to muscle it down. Look at verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. So basically he's saying, even though I'm giving my heart to the Lord and I know God has won the war, there's still pockets of battles raging in me. Can anybody understand what he's saying? There's still these places. It's kind of like this. When we uh, won the war in the Pacific, right, in World War II, we had defeated Japan, but there were still pockets of resistance and islands all over the South Pacific. And one way they had to, like, go in there and inform them, hey, guys, the war is over. It's been over for years. I don't know what war you're fighting. Like, the world has moved on. But still there's soldiers and places that are fighting, and they will kill you. If you come up on the beach and just, with that, you know, with just a open arms and a, hey, Hey, Japanese person, we're trying to release. No, boom, you're getting shot at. That's sin. That's sin in your life. You cannot produce a good thing out of a war, out of an enemy, right? You have to, you have to be released from war. And some of us in this room right now are not completely released from the wars that we're fighting because there's pockets of resistance within our system. And Paul is acknowledging that. Will you realize that? Paul is acknowledging. If Paul can acknowledge that, can we acknowledge that? He's not talking about perfect Christians. He's not talking about spotless Christians. What he's talking about is real Christians that are trying to deal with this, but are not trying to deal with this on their own. They're not trying to deal with it with the law. How can Christians do life without Christ? How can we do the work of the Lord without the Spirit? And what he's saying right now is, it's rampant in me, and I have to realize something, which brings us to this diagnosis. I'm dealing with a redeemed person. That's you and me that still deals with sin. You don't have to go any further than the Bible to find out how many warts were on all the people that God used. But were they still redeemed? Was Peter still redeemed? Did God still love him? Did God not give up on him? Which brings us to the second part of that point. Christ still loves me and is working on me. Who are we to judge how God is going to work out his goodness in us? Oh, I, I fell, I stumbled, I sinned again. God must have given up on me. 
Who, who am I to know what the Lord is going to say and use that particular moment to produce in something in me to say, hey, this, look at verse Colossians 3.9. Joey, why don't you go ahead and take off your old self? God bless you. With its practices and put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Do you realize that what we're saying in this particular verse and in this passage is the Lord is saying this, Yes, you may have sinned, and yes, you may have failed, and yet you might be disappointed, and you may have even grieved the Holy Spirit. But also, too, it should produce in you a realization of this. I need Jesus all the more. Yes, I'm saved, but I need Jesus just as much as the day that I got saved as I need him right now. And Jesus is not holding back anymore. In fact, he's pouring out more of himself. This thing about the ongoing relationship he must have with you and how much he must love you to find you in your rebellious state, even after you've given your heart to him, to come find you again and go, let's start again. Let's wash again. Let's be redeemed again. Let's be restored again. Walk with me. I cast your, I cast your sin in the sea of forgetfulness. What kind of a Jesus are we dealing with here? A loving one. And that's why we have to see Christ still loves me and is working on me. And we have a participation, and that participation is right there in the verse that says, taken off with your old self and its practices. It's time for the Christians in this room to take the worldly practices that hold us back in our relationship with Jesus Christ, and like mature Christians should be, put them away. Put them away. Just, it's no longer a part of this relationship. Um, I always like this because you know you guys... I'd love to tell the story. Is when I got married to Jackie, um, I was a film student, and I've told this story before, so forgive me, but it holds true here. Is as a film student, I loved horror movies because horror movies were made for cheap. Most horror movies are not expensive movies, and so as a film student, you love movies that are made for cheap to make. You know, if they make a lot of money, then you've done a great job. That's a su- successful movie. But when Jackie walked into my DVD collection, all she saw was pain and misery. And she was ready to flip them all out, right? And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I, pay, I went to Best Buy and paid a lot of money for those movies. Those are good movies. But she said to me, if you're married to me, then this is the old you. We're not going to bring this darkness into our life. And I said, well, you're pretty cute. So the movie's got to go. Sometimes we have to realize that there is a bigger thing that is happening in our life. There's a bigger work. There's a bigger love. There's a new calling in our life. And that's Jesus walking into your life, walking in your heart and going, this has got to go. This has got to go. This has got to go. And go, but, but this is how I cope. This is how I deal. This is how I get by. And he goes, you don't need it anymore. I'm here. I'm here. Look at verse 18. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, For I have the desire to do what is good. See, the desire is there, right? But I cannot carry it out. I'm so thankful that Paul put this chapter in the Bible. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Isn't that crazy? I saw this video of these, uh, what are they called, cordyceps, mushrooms? They were landing on these ants, and they were turning these ants into zombies and making them do what they want. And this is exactly what he sounds like, right? Like, we're all zombies to our sin, right? Like, the sin is making me do it, and I'm just, I can't control myself. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Just to remind you, this is Paul writing this. One of the coolest guys of the New Testament. Filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Caught up into the third heaven. And he's writing words like this. 
For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. This brings us to one of our final points here. It says, real obedience comes by allowing the love of the Lord to work through me. You have to allow it. Because we are helpless, as Paul just wrote in his scripture, right? It's almost like I'm like that ant that has the mushroom on it, and it's like I'm a zombie, and I just got to go wherever the mushroom tells me to go. Same way, I got to just do whatever sin tells me to do. What he's saying is right here is, I'm helpless. Has anyone ever felt helpless against their sin? Against addiction? Against darkness? Against fear? Against anxiety? And yet still loves the Lord? The Lord is speaking you today, and he's saying, you are helpless, but you are not alone. You have the great helper, and that is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, which has come to you. And which is what he's saying. God has come to lovingly remove the power that tries to control you because is, is sin more powerful than Jesus? Is death more powerful than God? No, absolutely not. He's come to remove a spirit of rebellion in us. And think about it. Look how lovingly he does it. Could God just come in with a hammer and just start swinging and knock the sin out of you? Who here has paid that kind of a punishment? Look at the cross and ask, have you ever paid a punishment like that for your sin? Not once. I mean, if you do, please come see me after. We have to talk. Not once have you ever paid a sin like Jesus Christ. Not one of us has ever paid the physical pain that Jesus paid, and none of us have ever paid the spiritual pain because none of us have ever been cut off from God. And Jesus was on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became our curse. He became our sin. He became separated. He became hell for us so that we could get heaven. And what we say right here is we have to begin to understand if God loved us that much on the cross, how much more will he love us in the every little details of every day? If he could save you from hell, how much will he love you? All the more of the little sins that, that add up to every day, Right? And this is his point. He's saying we don't obey because we love. We love. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. We don't love because we obey. We obey because we love. This is not a process. We, we are in a love relationship with the Lord. And we realize this, that the more that the, the grace pulls us forward through our sin, and I want you to understand this, it's like you're in a rowboat, right? And if you were trying to sin, you were going against the, the river of grace, right? And this current's trying to drag you towards Jesus. But if you just let go of the oars, where is grace dragging you? right towards Jesus, right towards him, right? And then you realize this, that his grace has ever been faithful and ever pulling you forward, right? And what do we learn in the process? We are learning how to be faithful to him. We know God's faithful to us. We are learning how to be faithful to him. And that's where we pause and just want to appreciate this level of grace because you realize this, it is in grace that we realize our greatest need is not us to escape sin. Our greatest need is to rely on God. Our greatest need is not to, to accomplish or achieve the law. Our greatest need is just to trust God and let him take us the rest of the way by his power. Just think about this. In grace, in my moment of weakness, and I'm broken on the floor, and there's tears streaming out of my face, and I've sinned against the God that I love so much, and my sin has put him up on the cross, and my heart is broken, and his heart is broken, I realize this. His grace has now just proven to me how good he really is because he's going up on the cross for me. Also this, my, his grace has proved to me how much I really need him because I can't do this without him. Paul says he can't do this without him. Paul is saying, I am a sinner, guys. I know how to play the game. I know how to walk in church. I know how to speak Christianese. I know how to be the best of the best outwardly. Inwardly, I need Jesus just as much as all of you. 
And what he's saying right there is my heart longs to be authentic with God, to be real with God, to say, God, I am a sinner. I'm gross on the inside. I'm chock full of me and I need me full of more of you. And this is where the cry and loss and desperation comes out, where sin just fully breaks the relationship. And I go like this, Lord, I want to be different. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I want to be different. I don't want to be the sinner anymore. Lord, I'm not doing that good. I know people think I'm doing good. I'm not doing that good. But apart from you, I cannot do good. So I need more of you in my life. This is the very words of repentance. And do you know what repentance is? Changing your mind about sin. It's not just saying sorry. The word repentance actually means changing your mind about sin. You know what I think of sin? It's the worst. Why? Because it pushes me away from the Lord, and I don't want that. So I must repent. I must change my mind. I must say to the Lord, for this relationship to get better, I can't blow smoke. I can't sugarcoat it. The Bible has run a diagnostic test on me, and it's come back dire. I am unrighteous. So look at his, Paul, how he handles it. And you can almost hear a change in his tone and how he's writing this letter. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Can you hear it? He's come to the end of himself. I'm a sinner, and now he's saying, it's just death. This word that he's actually using here, wretched, is closer to a word that's given to a criminal that's actually received a sentence, and the sentence looks like this. uh, Paul, who used to be called Saul of Tarsus, grew up in a place uh, where they actually took criminals that were guilty of murder, and they would tie the victim of the murder to the murderer. So the person's dead, and they chain you to the dead person. And now you got to live with that dead person. Now you know what the end result is. As that body decays, you get sick and you die. And so what he's saying is, I am chained to my sin, and I am dying, and I'm sick of it. I'm exhausted, and I'm tired, and I don't want to do this anymore. And something has to come along. Something bigger, something stronger has to come along to break those chains. Because guess what? Me, the man, the person that I am, the human being before you, cannot do it on its own. And that's why he closes in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ or Jesus Christ our Lord. This brings us to one of our last points here. It says, I'm already cured because the cure is Jesus Christ and he's at work in me. You ever see those movies where somebody's infected with something and they give them, you know, like they give them the antidote and you can see like in the movie, the way that they do it is that they have like some kind of weird, you know, like color discoloration across their arm. And then you can see the discoloration going away, right? But they're already relieved because why? The antidote is in them. And all the antidote has to do what? Work its way through. It's got to work its way through. It's got to fight the infection. It's got to go all the way to the ends. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, you know what? You're in, a, you're, in a, you're in a healing process. You're in the process of being delivered. Until we're in heaven and out of these sinful bodies, guess what? We are not fully delivered. We're in the process of being delivered to that day. And imagine one day you'll have a body that has no sin in it. Amen? You'll have a body that won't even cry because there will be no sin in the world. But in the process right now, there's this medicine that is working in sinful old me. And so I just want to say this to you right now. If you are guilty of sinning, Paul is saying first, welcome to the club. If you're a Christian that is guilty of sinning, welcome to the club. If you're a non-believer, welcome to the club. Second, you can say this, I have not lost because I have victory in Jesus Christ. I have the antidote and it's running into me. 
It's ultimately about this. If you were to die today because of sin, but you have given your heart to the Lord, where will you be? Heaven. You have victory. So what's happening right now in the meantime? We are being prepared for that sanctification. We are being cleansed and set aside for a higher purpose. Can you imagine this? I always think about this. It's a weird thought. But I think about this as me getting mad at God about while he's cleansing me. It's like me putting the dishes in the dishwasher and hitting start and the dishes just jumping out. I mean, like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to get clean. I'm like, have you even waited till the end? There's like all these contraptions and like stuff's going to shoot out. Jackie showed me there's a, there's a, uh, there's a little, little compartment that we weren't putting. There was like a third compartment of soap that we we're supposed to put special soap and it makes it so there's no spots. I didn't even know that thing existed. I just looked at this thing and she's like, oh, you're supposed to put that in there. I've been doing this whole time. How much about yourself do you not know that God's going to come along and go, and this is how we sanctify this part of you. This is how we release you from this sin. This is how we free you from that burden. So then he says, then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in sinful nature as a slave to the law of sin. I love that what he says. I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, which means for continued healthy living, this is our last and final point. It says, I fight this good fight alongside the Lord by letting him lead me away from sin. Do you know that's the process of sanctification? God doesn't come and shake a big finger in your face and go, look at you, you dirty sinner. Look at you. Do you, you know, I love this when I see parents say this because we're always at, you know, like Walmart or Target and some kids are acting up and my kids look at me like, are they going to get in trouble? And then I always hear that other parent go, don't you know you're a direct reflection on me? And sometimes we feel like we fail the Lord because we know that we are a reflection of what God's doing in us. But really the reflection that we should be showing the world is, hey, sinner, I'm just like you. The only difference is I have Jesus working in me. The only difference between everybody out there and everybody in here is Jesus is at work. Construction site. And I love this. He says, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to getting better with Jesus Christ. I'm going to close on this and then we're going to give you an option to pray for this. It's Titus 2.11. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to the ungodliness and the worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. I want to remind you, it's for him to redeem and it's for him to purify. And then what is the end result? We are eager to do what is good. You know why I'm eager to do what's good? Because the work and the cure that's running in me, the antidote that's destroying all the sin, is God's love. That's it. It's not chastisement. It's not punishment. Punishment already took place on the cross. But every day, every single person here must have to make a decision. I have to choose to right, to do right, or to do wrong, right? And that's where the spiritual battle is. Sin is seeking to drag you away from the Lord, but the grace of the Lord is what? Seeking to drag you right towards the Lord. So you have a choice before you. Choose God's grace or choose rebellion. Choose heaven or choose hell. And a mature Christian would do this. I'm going to make the right choice because it actually is the good choice. It's Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, I just thank you so much that you are at work in your people tonight. Every day. Lord, I just pray right now um, as we just present our hearts to you and just like that light before 
I step into the light in this prayer with you and I open up my heart and I say, Lord, what needs to go? What do I need to get rid of? What's not valuable to this relationship? What do I need to toss to the side? I choose to let you do the work because I can't. Every time I try to do good, I actually do less. That's what I'm guilty of. So I'm going to stop trying and I'm going to start trusting. I want to walk hand in hand with you, Lord, into my life and into my heart and into my soul and say, Lord, please restore what sin has broken. Please redeem what sin has ravaged and stolen. Begin your good work tonight in me. I confess my sins before you. And if you're in this room right now, I just would ask this if, I don't need to know, but if you guys keep your eyes to the ground and keep your head bowed, if you have sin that just needs to be confessed, and that's you in this room, and nobody's looking around, I promise you, you have this, raise your hand, and we'll just pray together. Just make that declaration. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. If you have sin in your life that you just need to get rid of, we're going to confess it. Thank you. Thank you for the hands. Thank you. And don't be ashamed. The Lord hung publicly on a cross for you. You can say to the Lord, Lord, I have secret sin. I have things that I'm battling. Thank you. Thank you. And so with this confession, Lord, we publicly say, you know what the sin is, Lord. You already knew what it was before we walked in this room. You knew that we were going to even raise our hands. And so, Lord, we say, come inside of our heart and pour out your grace and remove all the things that sin would destroy. Remove sin itself. Break the chains. Give us freedom. Give us trust. Give us faith. Lord, let your mercy reign in our hearts. Drive the enemy away. Lord, calm my soul to trust you and follow you, and I will let you lead me all the way out to blessed hope. I am free. I am released. It is you who now leads, Lord, not me. I am free under your love. I receive your love. I receive your forgiveness, and this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. In Jesus' holy name we say, amen. Amen.